Welcome. I would like to introduce you all to Lori Barkman. Uh, Lori is the owner and CEO of Small.Big and a, an award-winning Vistage speaker. Uh, I had Lori come to two of my chief executive group meetings back in February to discuss building the value of your company. Uh, we had a, a great conversations, Laurie, and we really enjoyed having you there. And this is an opportunity to both build off of some of what we heard and learned and ask a few more questions, if that sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. I'm glad to be with you yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Third time's a charm. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Laurie, can you give, give the folks um, a little bit of your background? Absolutely. As you mentioned in the introduction, my firm is small dot big. So let's start with a fun little story. When you're playing pool with someone from England or, or Australia, they're playing pool and they're saying small dot or big dot. We're saying solids or stripes. And I took that as an inspiration for what I do with business owners is help them see what they're not seeing. And I work with business owners from transition to transaction, from creating value to letting go. And my story in this exit planning world began when the company I was working with got acquired by a Fortune 50. So I was a CEO for about a $100 million division of a company that got acquired with uh, an amazing experience around that. And it, it struck me how entrepreneurs, they don't build their business on their own. Why should they sell their company on their own? Shouldn't they surround themselves with trusted advisors? And I want to be one of those people. So I got my certification as a mergers and acquisitions advisor. So in addition to working with business owners to get ready for an ultimate exit, I also work with them on the transaction to make sure that we're, we're seeing everything through from A to Z. Wonderful. Great, great, great. Thank you. Lori, um, you kicked off our workshop back in February with a wonderful slide. It, if I remember it right, it said, the one thing we know is that 100% of us will be exiting our business someday. Um, and, you know, we all have a strategic plan for running our business, yet few have a strategic transition plan for exiting our business. And that really caught the eye of our folks. Can you say more and tell us about strategic transition planning? Absolutely. Just like you said, you're going to create a business plan. You're going to get your management team aligned and you're going to execute. That's the point of having a strategic plan. And there's been studies shown. If we write down our goals, if we write down what we aim to do, we're more than 40% on our way, right? We're 40, more than 40% more likely to achieve just because we've said we want to do these things. So if we have these lofty aspirations to sell our company one day or have our management team buy it from us or transition it to our kids, and we think about it and we think about it, but we don't put a plan together, what happens? I just met with a business owner yesterday and he he laughed at himself a little bit. He said, yeah, you know, my plan is to, is to uh, sell my business in three to five years. And my wife reminded me that I said that eight years ago. Uh -huh. And so he, we laughed about it. And he said, you know, I really think I'm, I'm, I want to do this. I have to get it out of my head. It's sure. swirling in my head. I have all these questions. And that's, I said, my superpower 
has been strategic planning for a long time. But as I mentioned, I was a CEO. Before that, I worked in big companies, small companies, everything in between. And finding structure to something that's complicated or finding structure to something where you don't have experience with it. It seems so ambiguous that it's just too easy to put on the back burner. I have another client who has been wanting to update his operating agreement with his business partner for probably the last six years. He told me that it's sitting on his desk in the corner and it's got coffee stains on it and he looks at it every once in a while. And now it's like the bane of his existence. He can't stand looking at it anymore. So what I do is I work with clients to help them get clarity around the biggest questions swirling in their mind and sitting on their shoulders. And so what we do is over a period of time, this is not overnight, this is not an easy thing to do, but we work on a series of of pieces and parts that over time stitches together a strategic business transition plan. And it starts with just like your business plan should. What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? What's your vision for a transition and why? Why do these things matter to you? What are those goals? Let's try to quantify some of those things. I like to put the goals, if we can, in three buckets. The first bucket being a personal goal. The second one is financial. And of course, business is tied in. But specifically, we're talking about the financial aspects of uh, a sale or transition. And then the third is the business. And so the business, what goals do we have for it? And what do we need to do get to get from here to there? That's at a high level what we're looking to accomplish. And a plan is only as good as its execution. So if we only set the goals, but we don't get to strategies or action plans, and we don't get to articulate who is accountable for what and by when, this plan's going nowhere. So the process is to work with the owner and help hold a level of accountability to them So that at the right time, they can be pulling in the resources they need to get the plan moving forward. Uh, No, that's great. I know, you know, one of the uh, powerful tools that uh, we used in the workshop, you had all of our members take uh, a business readiness assessment. Um, And as I recall, it provided a score on how ready they were to sell their business around eight key drivers of the company value. So it's a really uh, great litmus test on how ready is your company to sell today and then what needs to be done to move forward. What's been your experience in how best to prepare CEOs to sell the business, the time it takes? You know, How do you go about going from hearing the score to, okay, I am ready? It can vary for people. For some people, they're more ready than others. They've been thinking about it for a while. They just need to get to the starting block. For others, they're thinking, well, I need to do certain things first. So we have to figure out what are those things. One of those things might be to improve the business, especially after COVID. Some folks had a little bit of a COVID hangover on their financials, and they want to get one more year, two years, three years of improved uh, profitability so that when there's a multiplier on that number, it's the best it can be. And there's a trajectory that's trusted. Um, so that's part of it is how do we make sure that whoever's looking at your business uh, identifies the opportunities and the upside 
and minimizes, sees minimal risk, right? We're trying to minimize risk in a transaction on both sides. And for a buyer, ultimately it influences the price they're willing to pay. So for a seller who wants to get ready, there's a lot of different aspects of getting ready. You know, that's why the personal side of this is important because it could just be the mental blocker of, oh, this was my grandfather's company and I'm the generation to sell it. And there's an emotion tied to that. So there's some potentially some baggage there getting in the way. For others, it's about getting the um, the, the folks who are going to stay with the business incentivized and excited about a transition, maybe including them in the process so that the buyer sees continuity and again, might be willing to pay more for that or less if the management team isn't staying. So those are all really key aspects. I mean, there's a really long laundry list here, Rick, but I think the main things is understanding what comprises value in your business is a great place to start. If you've not had a valuation done recently or at all, I love doing that with my clients because it really is very eye-opening. And likewise, when I talked about the financial goals, we also talk about their financial situation and what we might need that net number to be if you sold the company to someone, right? Regardless of who that is, you're selling it. There's a transaction there and there's the tax man coming a calling. And so there's a slice that's going to to the government and there's a slice that's going maybe to pay off debt. So we have this net, net, net number. What is that number? And for some, that is, there's a gap. We need to know what that gap is. And if we say, wow, we've got five years to close a $10 million gap. How do we do that? Right, right. The more time that's on your side. Yeah. the more options you can create and the more ability you have to to have a successful transition with what your goals are. If you say, well, I don't, I'm okay with that net number and I just need to sell next year because of health issues or because of disputes in the business. Well, that might affect your selling price and that's okay. We need to understand that, but that just might be the way it is. Some people say, I, I need to do this. I really need, I'm tired or I'm burned out um, or other dynamics that are that are putting extenuating circumstances on the business and a business owner, and they're ready for for their next their next part of their life. Right. Wow. No. Very helpful. It's it is you know I love your um, your whole concept of that integration of the personal and the business, and and we'll dig into that a little bit. Um, I've got some questions for you about that. One thing that you presented to the group that that I think really struck a chord with people was the notion of an organizational life cycle. Or I know some of my folks are referring to it as a maturity curve. And, um, and the question was, you know, how does a company know where they are on this maturity curve? Is there an assessment or something like that that you can do? And the second part of that is um, how does the life cycle impact or where you are on this maturity curve impact the business value? Yeah, the life cycle is thinking about companies like we're people and that a company, just like people, we go through different stages. Right, right. And it starts as infants. You know, we start, we crawl, walk, run, and we we have a courtship period. We find 
partners. We might get divorced from partners. Uh, we continue to grow and we have challenges along the way. So a stage for a company, very common in the groups um, in Vistage are adolescents because these are not typically startups, right? Vistage right. members are of a certain size and maturity. And so typically in our groups, we're seeing adolescents. So let's put an age factor of maybe five to 10 years uh, of age around those types of companies, just, just for sake of conversation. Um, a company that is maturing to the next stage is approaching a, a stage that's a wonderful place to be, which is called Prime. And Prime is not our peak on the chart. If you look at the chart, it looks like a roller coaster. Right. What's at the top of the chart is actually called the fall. The fall is the start of the downside, the death yeah. valley, if you will. It's this other side of the chart. Um, the decline is the side of the curve where we don't want to be. And for some companies, it is very, very mature, mature businesses that just perhaps are past their prime, if I could say it that way. Um, maybe they have cash cow businesses that on, on paper on the surface are covering up ish, real issues in the business because financials are still good. However, they've been on a decline for a while. Perhaps um, businesses in decline are more inward focused and um, there's a lot of infighting. There's, there's certain signals. So how can a business know where they are? Well, there's some resources out there that can help us understand where we are in our organizational life cycle. But at, at a high level, these are some of the characteristics. Let me go back to Prime for a second, because this is a this is really, I think, what intrigued a lot of companies in the room. When we think about a company that's in Prime, a Prime company is hitting on all cylinders. Right. Product market fit, financials right. are good. We've right. articulated our mission, vision, values, and our purpose, and employees are walking the talk. Management is walking the talk. And some reasons why a company might head towards the fall could be that they've been disintermediated by technology, um, corporate uh, competition has heated up, or some regulatory issues have caused problems. For some companies after COVID, they just didn't recover. So the fall is for sure about financial, but it's a lot of it is about culture. Yeah. So you might ask, Rick, and I know I think this came up in the group, can a company be in more than one category and can we change from one to the other? Right, right. Um, and so it is possible to go from the decline back to a maturity cycle that looks healthier. Sure, that is possible. And I'm an advocate of growth and innovation strategies that can help a company do that. Um, one thing to mention in my introduction is I'm an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University, and I teach a class called Corporate Startups, and it's about corporate entrepreneurship and how big companies, it's not too late, and that they can be investing in innovation and they can think differently about growth, organic growth, and what they can be doing. I'm also an advocate for growth through acquisition. And that's another way for companies to think differently about, you know, bringing them, bringing them balance sheet and bringing their financial picture into a healthier, sustainable future. So the organizational life cycle is not an exact science to pinpoint where you are. I think it's great framework to start the conversation, especially in a workshop like Vistage, when we have a room full of folks that are all at different vantage points. It was a way to level set, I think, and for a way for people to understand each other also and in a different in a different context. Great. No, very, very helpful. Thank you. No, that's really great. Um, 
Another thing that you mentioned in the in the in the with the groups, both groups, that uh, was very helpful, and it's probably common language in the world of M and A, but I know for some of our folks it was it was new language, and and that was really looking at the kind of sale that one might consider. You spoke about strategic, you spoke about financial. And I forget the name of the third, but what I remember is it's kind of an internal transfer, either an ESOP or a family generational kind of a thing, or you've got a mentor that you'd like to see take over the business. So three, typically three different kinds of potential sales. Uh, could you talk a little bit about those, those three types of uh, uh, acquisitions? Sure. It's it's in the context of this big question of who should own your business after you? Yeah, yeah. And we we talked about these three potential buyer segments. So at a high level, I'll share I'll share a little bit more. The first one, like you said, Rick, is strategic, a strategic buyer. And what are some characteristics of a strategic buyer? Well, a strategic buyer is a company or an entity. Maybe it's a competitor to you. Maybe it's a, a, a company that's in your ecosystem, upstream, downstream supply chain. Um, maybe they're a customer. So this is an entity that is looking to incorporate the assets of your business into their business. Right. It, it was like my experience, a, a big company eating a smaller company. That's the most common, right? We all can all sort of picture right. that. And what happens a lot of times is they will run that division or that company as a standalone entity initially, and then eventually they'll integrate it in. So when a strategic buyer is thinking about its uh, financials and how to how to value that acquisition, they may say, well, we don't necessarily need these functions and these people and this headcount expense. So over time, we're going to get leverage in this sale, in this transaction, because of these changes we're going to make to the business. And it may also enhance our ability to cross-sell or upsell, explore new markets. And so they may have an up, upside on the top line, as well as an improvement on expenses. And so that enhances the bottom line. Now, we don't see their numbers, and we don't know ultimately what they're willing to pay. But generally speaking, strategics tend to pay a premium because they can see a benefit in a different way than this, uh, these other categories. And so they, next, well, an easier savings point. Could be. Yeah. And, and how they're doing their fancy math, which I won't bore everybody with, but all the MBA speak on net present value and IRR and all these calculations they're going to do. Yeah. So then the next category uh, of potential buyers are financial buyers. Now, of course they're doing fancy math also, um, these are institutional buyers or, that are most commonly in the news. We hear about private equity groups that are doing acquisitions. And what they private equity groups do is they have a limited they have limited partners that are doing private placement investments, and they will acquire standalone entities and run them as a standalone. And that's normally a platform deal. So these are larger acquisitions, or they might do smaller deals and then tuck them in underneath which are, uh, again, tuck-ins or add-ons. So a private equity buyer that's doing a what we really might think of as a hybrid, where it has some of the attributes of a strategic, where we want the pieces and parts, and we want to integrate it in, and we're going to get cost leverage, then they might be willing to pay a little bit more as a premium for 
these tuck-ins. A platform deal, um, they're looking for predictability of future cash flow. They're looking for it to stand alone on its own. It's very important for the management team to stay in place because they need it to, to run as it's been running. Um, other other common things you might hear about or not hear about, another one we talked about in, in, uh, in our sessions were family offices, that family offices are significant investors in our in our country, but we, we're kind of below the radar. We don't really know a lot about them, but they're emerging as an investor group because they have a long-term time horizon, which differentiates them from private equity groups. Uh, family office is a, a group of investors. They're all related to each other, and their time horizon typically is infinite. You know, they're looking to continue to generate um, positive cash flow, positive you know, returns for their family. And the investments they make are buy and hold, typically, whereas a private equity group might have a five to seven year time horizon because they want to uh, they want to get a return on their investment for their for their invest, you know, for their investor group. But related to that, as a seller, it can create a special financial opportunity, what we call the second bite at the apple. So yeah. if you're acquired by a private equity group, and they give you an opportunity to roll over some of your equity interests into the larger portfolio. And then that portfolio is going to have an exit. You could see a significant return on investment uh, as you participate in that in that growth cycle. So that's a very interesting thing. It's just like with any of these potential buyers, we have to find the right fit. So I'm not giving any judgment about it. I'm just you know sharing some some opportunity to think about and frame it out. On that private equity, um, a, a few of my folks are looking at at that, and um, and what's interesting is they get a nice payout by selling the company. Um, sometimes they'll be asked to come run the company or work for the private equity group or not, um, but oftentimes they're asked. Part of the deal is we need you to keep 10% or 20% of that equity in, in the ongoing operation. And the irony is when the next bite of the apple comes along five, six years later, they get virtually as much money, if not possibly more, than what they did on the initial sale. Is that typical? Yeah, it can be typical, absolutely, because of that strategy for private equity groups to have a pretty short, you know, five to seven years is not a, a long time horizon, relatively right. speaking. Yeah. And there's a lot of impetus to, to grow and to improve operations and improve profitability. And then especially if it's part of a roll up, yeah. I was working with a, on a buy side, I was working with a, a, a private equity group doing a roll up and I helped them and do some sourcing and find some deals. Yeah. And that was absolutely something that our sellers were open to, excited about. They had a lot of gas in the tank, and they were motivated, incentivized to stay and be part of and be part of that bigger picture. Yeah, great. So, yeah. what's what's the third category? The third it? category is related buyers, and they may literally be related to you because they're family. Again, the question is, who should own your business after you? So, are we going to gift our shares? Are we going to sell our shares to family? Um, are we going to do that with our management team? Some people think that they have a management team that could be future owners of the business. There's a lot of assumptions around both family and management. And I encourage conversations because a lot of times the bubbles are burst that one way or another, these folks may not be a fit. And it's best to figure that out before it's too late. 
Um, if you're assuming that your junior wants to take it over and junior absolutely does not want it, you really should know that, <laughs> you know, yeah. you should know that be before you make all your assumptions and all your plans around junior taking over the business. And likewise for management, very often for management, and it can be for junior also, that they don't have the skill set. So not only do they not have the interest, or they might not have the skill set, they might not have the aptitude, which could obviously be a, an issue for a future, um, you know, sustainability of the business remaining remaining viable, but also for the management team, uh, non-family, how motivated are they going to be to stay on? And also for the bankability of the business, if it starts to really take a downturn headed into the decline, that's not a fun place to be. It has to be heartbreaking for a first or second generation owner who's really built a great business to speak to a son or daughter or niece or nephew and uh, with this incredible opportunity and the response is, you know, thank you, but I'm really not interested. And, and yet how many may proceed and, uh, and, and really not have their heart and soul in it, but it's out of a sense of obligation. So I, to really have those open and candid conversations, I can imagine is really important for, for the related, related segments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, as we think about, you know, conducting a business readiness assessment, you know, against those eight key levers and, um, and winding that into a strategic transition plan for the business, uh, two critical steps to get ready for a potential sale or exit from the business, from the business. Um, what about, I'd like to circle back to the person, to that, the, you know, that CEO or business owner themselves. So is there, is there a, a, a similar kind of a, a, a personal readiness assessment or a personal transition plan that um, you've done with people? Yeah, absolutely. It's really valuable to do this. I like starting here with my clients. I like to start with the personal assessment because the questions bring out things that they probably haven't shared before or articulated before. I have a client that's a husband and wife, and it's just refreshing to have them together in the same room. I'm not saying everyone has to do that, um, but I think that's a really important dynamic. If, let's say, you are in, in ownership with another person, how you feel, how they feel. So if you're with a, uh, if you have a business partner, I would advocate for both partners taking this assessment and then comparing how they feel about things. Um, this is something called the pre-score, which is a personal readiness to exit. And there's four dimensions that the answers are trying to cluster around. Um, the first one is future vision. How do we think about the future? Do we have a perspective of what we want to be doing when we're not working in our business day to day? Okay. For many people, the answer is no, they don't know. <laughs> so right. I had one, I had one client on a zero to 100, he scored a zero. Yeah. He literally scored a zero and it was not a good situation for him. He said, Oh my goodness, Lori, I'm glad I'm working with you. <laughs> well, I know for a number of my folks who are, you know, in the mid to late fifties, sixties, and they're asking that question. One of the things that I read quite a bit about is that that next phase of life is really key 
meaning making essentially is is at the heart of much of it and be clear that you want to do something it may be a volunteer work it may be it may be golf <laughs> but um, be really clear that whatever it is you're going to be moving on to is is giving that meaning making back to you and um, and people just seem to be living a, a life that thrives if they have that versus one of hmm, you know, Sometimes uh, uh, not so happy. Um, if, well, say it. Go ahead and say it. Regret. And yeah, that regret is depre depression, frankly. And depression. It's common. It's unfortunately yeah. very common. Yeah. The, one of the dri the other drivers, like I said, there's four. And the, one of the other drivers is personal detachment. Ah, and the ability to detach, the ability to have an identity outside of your business. Yeah. What if your name is on the door? What if you're right. a second gen, third gen? How can you detach? I had a, I had a, I have a podcast called Succession Stories, and one of the guests on the show talked about the sale of the bleach company that had been in the family for four generations, like a, like a product that you would get in the grocery store, right. bleach. And he said he can't walk down the bleach aisle. He cannot walk down the household cleaners aisle. He just can't do it. He can't see the product on the shelf, knowing that he's not part of that company anymore. Yeah. That's yeah. personal. Yeah, that is personal. Right? Yeah, that has to so, be. Tough. Yeah, that's a tough one. And then the other drivers that with this survey brings out, one is around flexibility, how flexible we are in thinking about our transition and what that might mean mm -hmm. with who might own us next, right? So this concept of um the transaction itself and how we think about it and what our role might be in that new company or that new entity? Do we want to stay on? Do we not want to stay on? Are we open to these things? So understanding flexibility around that. And then last but not least is a category of, of your team and how involved your team is or will be for some is important when the time is right, because there can be feelings of guilt around who's left behind, right? And, and maybe some of them had a nice financial bogey and were incentivized to help out with a transaction in some way. So these questions are, are geared towards that, towards thinking about who we want to thank along the way and how we want to leave our legacy. You know, it's, it's just amazing as with a merger and acquisition, right? What, what typically um, makes for an unsuccessful merger and acquisition, it's usually not the lack of financial due diligence or market due diligence or customer due diligence. It's culture stuff. And here we are in the same thing. I mean, those four elements, none of them were about the dollars. It's about really where is our headspace? Where is our personal readiness for making these kind of transitions? So really, really important. Thank you for, for sharing all that. Hey, I understand you've got a new book coming out, the Business Transition Handbook. So tell us about it. And it's coming out in May, I believe. Yeah, I'm super excited about it, Rick. I've had some early readers review it, and they say it's it's really impactful. They wish they had it when they were going through their entrepreneurial journey. I've written the book so that it's a couple of things. It's, it's storytelling meets uh, educational and learning meets practical. Right. You know, what it is a handbook. That's why I was very pur purposeful calling it the business transition handbook. So it's it's not a workbook where you're going to get it and it's 20 pages. It's it's pretty beefy, but there's a lot there and there's a lot to 
to relate to. You know, again, tried to bring out some stories from folks that have been on my podcast and some anonymized client experiences. And I think these stories can help people realize they're not alone. And that this is, again, a challenging thing to do. I recognize that you might want to have somebody with you on your journey. And so this is a book that I envision people are going to dog ear and write in and circle and highlight and put post-it notes. I would love that. And I would love for people to read it and and say one day back to me how it helped them. And of course, perhaps want to work with me too. That's part of the part of the book is I want people to connect with me and, and I, and I hope that it's resonating with them. I just like the podcast People tell me all the time, oh, they listened to this episode or that episode and they learned this and they learned that. And that's what I want this book to do. Is you, If you remember back to my introduction of the name of my firm and I had that aha moment of, wow, solids and stripes versus small dot and big dot. I'll never see it the same way again. I learned something new. I had a different perspective. <coughs> and that's my goal with this book. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So what is the best way for people to get a hold of you? Well, LinkedIn is fantastic. I love LinkedIn. Please connect with me there. Message me uh, privately or, you know, connect with me. I'm happy to do that. My email to give that out is lbarkman at smalldotbig.com. And the website is smalldotbig.com. Awesome. Well, Lori, thank you so much for taking time today. And uh, great follow-up to our two days of uh, workshops. And I'm sure we're going to have a few of our members here wanting to follow up with the with the personal assessment. So thank you. Absolutely. I welcome it. Thanks so much, Rick. It was great to be with you. Okay. <coughs>